The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles with you, could you please turn to the book of Ephesians? Actually, better said, the letter to the Ephesians is towards the back of your Bible. And it's, uh, it's pretty small. It's really just this page and this one, depending on the size of your Bible, that is. And this is where we're going to be spending, actually, the next several months. And so I'd encourage you to bookmark this section of Scripture, because what we're going to do on Sunday mornings here in the church is we are going to study this letter verse by verse, but not just study it. The invitation of this letter is to, is to let this word transform us to become altogether different, to to grow in the new identity we have in Christ. And my prayer for the church is the same as the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, in which he prays that we would come to know and understand the depth and the height and the width and the length of the incorruptible love of God toward us in Christ. This letter, in all its beauty and in its long run-on sentences, contains in it the simple yet profound gospel, the good news of the grace of God. And it's a grace that compels a response, a a response of love in the believer to the love that we've been shown in Christ. This letter, uh, just a few things about it, it contains only about 2,400 words, but volumes could be written on the depths of what it contains. This sermon will be more words than that, hopefully not too many more, but the good news of this passage is, is just beyond what I can even describe. The good news of this letter, I should say, This is the crown jewel of the Apostle Paul's writings. We looked last week at at the context to which this letter was written, who wrote it, and and what was going on in the city of Ephesus when this letter would have arrived. But in this letter's brief passages, it contains the depths of our faith. And so as we go through it over the coming months, what you're going to see is chapters 1 through 3. They're really all about doctrine. They're all about telling us this gospel of salvation, what God has done for us on a cosmic level and then on a personal level. And then it's this prayer of Paul in chapter three that that this will sink in, that we'll get this and that we'll live in response to it. And then in the following chapters in four through six, it will talk about how this applies in our lives, how we live out this response to the gospel practically. And we'll see this in our families and in our marriages, in our workplaces, in spiritual warfare, which is a daily battle, a daily battle of the spirit of God within us against the work of the enemy. And so I want us to think of chapters one through three as like getting to know our father. This greeting at the beginning of this letter will describe God as our father. And and that's what these first few chapters are. Getting to know what our our dad is like, God our father. And then chapters four to six, we're going to get to see how it is to live life with our father. So when you go home this week, I'm going to ask you to do something that might be a little unusual. I want to ask each of you to open to this letter and set aside about 20 minutes. Who has 20 minutes they can set aside for the word of God this week? Anyone? Hopefully you can make it happen. If you can't, um, well, I don't know. So we're going to take 20 minutes this week and set aside that time to open up this letter. And whether you're by yourself or with an audience, I'm going to ask you to do something that might be a little unusual or uncomfortable. I'm going to ask you to read this letter aloud from cover to cover from beginning to end, every verse allowed. It should take you about 20 minutes. 
And I'm going to ask you to do that because as we do that, it gives us an understanding of this letter as it was meant to be received by its original audience. Now, I'd encourage you, read it every week as we go through the study. Read the whole thing every week and let the truth of it wash over you and let it sink into you. But why would we read it all in one setting out loud? Because this is how the letter was intended to be received by its original recipients. Last week, we looked at the birth of the church in Ephesus. And I'd encourage you to go back and look at or listen to that message if you didn't get a chance to read it. But this gives the context for what we're going to see over the next several months. And the way this letter would be delivered is it wouldn't be like the letter to Corinth, where it's addressing specific problems or questions or issues within a church. And it wouldn't be like the letter to Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy, that are addressed to a specific person. Rather, this letter is addressed to the church broadly, the church as a whole, from, from the day of Paul to this day. It's a letter inspired by the Spirit of God addressed to you, believers in Christ. And it lays out in magnificent terms what Christ has accomplished for us and how we live in response to that life. So I want you to picture yourself in a city like Ephesus, in the early church. This is hard to imagine, but picture yourself surrounded by a culture that is obsessed with money, sex, and power. Okay, can you picture that? <laughs> picture a society that has corrupt politicians. Can you picture that? And in this context, the pressure on a Christian, on a church, a small group of believers would be immense because everything surrounding them would call them to a different kind of life, a different kind of focus. And here, these Christians are gathered together in small groups and they're, they're doing their best to live according to the word of God as best they know it. But all they have is the Old Testament and some scraps of writings and the teaching of traveling evangelists and apostles coming into town and, and clarifying what it is that Jesus has done. Imagine you're in that setting, desperate for some truth to cling on to. And into your context, arriving in town is a deacon, a brother or a sister in Christ bearing a letter from the apostle Paul to your church. This is a big deal. This is something where the entire church would gather and they would gather in one place and before dissecting and discussing each verse, verse by verse, like we love to do, they would simply sit and listen as their pastor, their local pastor would read aloud the letter from beginning to end. Now, now, this is why I invite you to do this, because this is how these letters are, are meant to be originally received. Certainly, we can dissect them and get into them, but, but when you read it aloud, it is going into your eyes, it is coming out, your, out of your mouth, and it is also going into your ears. And depending on your learning style, this will help the truth of what we're discussing to sink in. And, and it will help this word to not only be heard by us, but for us to respond to it and apply the word of God to our church, our work, and our home. And so as we read this greeting, it starts this way. It says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. It could have just as easily been read to the saints in Sardis, to the saints in Pergamum, to the saints in Galatia. See, this letter would be sent out from one central place, copied and then sent out to all the different churches to instruct them, to teach them, and to lead them in the way of Christ. So we could say it this way, to the saints in Clifton, to the saints in Centerville, to the saints in Fairfax, Yes, even to the saints in Manassas. Can you believe that? <laughs> and what the hearers will understand as we read this letter and as we read these first few verses is how profoundly being in Christ changes our identity. How profoundly it defines our identity. Did you know that when you became in Christ, you received a new identity? 
I want you to notice this as we read this passage. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. We're going to then focus on the first two, really, and then come back to the next 12 next week. But I want you to notice as I read this how often the Apostle Paul uses this little phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in the beloved. And note that as we go through this. And then I want you to also take note of what happens when we're in Christ, what we receive when we're in Christ, the identity shift that occurs when we are in Christ. Christ. Let me read this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints at the King's Chapel, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now, I hope you were able to, if not able to follow along, at least able to note all the things that we have in Christ, as, as Paul began to lay out for you there. And if it felt like a lot, it, it is a lot. This is actually in the original Greek. This is actually one sentence, these first 14 verses. So for all the English teachers out there, this is one massive Holy Spirit-inspired, glorious run-on sentence, okay? And we're going to come back to the depths of this next week. But, but it, it, in this, as we, we talk about identity and who we are in Christ, it begs this question, who am I? Who are you? Who am I is potentially the question that our society struggles to answer more than any other, at least to answer it correctly. Yet it is the question to which the answer may just shape everything else in the life of an individual and the values of a, of a society. Scripture begins with this description, though, of our identity, who we are, who God has made us to be. We are, you are, created by God in his image, to be a reflection of the Imago Dei, the image of God. That's why our, our children upstairs, as they're going through this catechism program, our, our older children are answering this question, how and why did God create us? And they're answering this way, God created us male and female in his own image to know him, to love him, live with him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. All that is to say, God made you, male and female, in his own image, to glorify him. 
Genesis says it in chapter one, from the beginning, it says this, then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. You are a created image bearer. God made you to reflect his goodness and his glory to others. He made you to be like him. Just as God has always been in in Trinitarian relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he has made you for conversation, communion, community, relationship. He's designed you to work like him, to be creative like him, to feel like him, to to think like him with a head, heart, and hands made to reflect the goodness of God. What that means is that all of humanity, even, even those that you don't like at all, that you can't stand, all of humanity are created with God's dignity, value, inherent worth. However, as created beings, what this also means is that we're not God. We're not God. So even though God has given humanity dominion over creation, we just heard all that he's given humanity to do. We are also in a profoundly humble position because we didn't make any of this. We are not God. At least we ought to be in a humble position when we consider our proper place of both dignity on the one hand and humility before God Almighty. And and so this is our image. This is what we're created to do. This is what we're created to reflect is the goodness and glory of God for the sake of his glory. And yet what scripture goes on from Genesis 1 to tell us is that that image, that reflection of God has been broken. It has been marred by sin. Sin entered the world through an identity crisis. Remember this? Adam and Eve are in the garden and and Eve is alone, and Adam is standing by passively, and the serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say you shall not eat of this, or the fruit of this tree? No, in fact, when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, able to discern good and evil. From the beginning, sin enters the world through this identity crisis. You are not as God intended you to be. No, you can be like God yourself. You can take the place of God if you want it. Your eyes will be opened. And so Adam and Eve, they go through with this. They sin and in their disobedience to God and ever since humanity has been like this. We have been in Adam. That's how scripture describes us. In a constant pursuit of forming our identity, our purpose, our life in things other than God. And so since Christ came, there are really only two categories of people. There are those that are still in Adam and there are those that are now in Christ. But as I look around at our world, as I look at our culture, as I look at myself, I see a culture, a humanity uh, that is not that far from, from where Adam began all of this. We are a culture with a dead set focus on finding our identity in things that God never intended. And you know what I'm talking about. We look forward in our, in our sexuality declaring from our sexual appetites, this is who I am, rather than this is how I am. Becoming the first society to widely embrace sexuality as identity. This is a a new thing that we've invented, where, where what I desire in sex is who I am. And we detach even gender from genetic sex. We're the first to do that. We look for identity, not just in sexuality, but in superficial characteristics, such as my birthplace is who I am. My language is who I am. 
My learning style is who I am. My, my, my Myers-Briggs is who I am. My skin color is who I am. Or maybe we look for our, our identity and our suffering. I am anxious. I am an addict. I am my illness. I am my allergy. I am my ailment. I am my trauma. Or we look for our identity and our success. What I'm good at is who I am. Regardless of if that success is an athlete or a politician or a business person or even a parent of young children, all those things, regardless of if those things are temporary, and all of them are, all of them fleeting. And I call this like the, the license plate identity. Anyone ever seen a car out there driving around and, and it's like a, a BMW cutting everyone off and you see the vanity plate and it says attorney on it? You ever seen those? <laughs> People wear their identity, they boil it down to just one word, and it's their success in whatever their field is, whatever they're passionate about, and they say to society and everyone who will notice them, this is who I am. I'm lawyer, I'm boss babe, I'm teacher, and, and we, identif- I, we draw our identity from what we do rather than really knowing why we do what we do, who we actually are, and who we're created to be. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Does, does this make sense to you? Do you see this, this constant pursuit of identity and things that are created rather than in the creator? And against this backdrop in our society, it's worse because we have this backdrop of postmodern relativism, American individualism, the sexual revolution, this cultural Gnosticism where we separate our, our, our soul from our body, at least in our minds. We are without a doubt a society that has a profound identity crisis. And it's one in which Christians, unfortunately, are not immune. Why? Because this is the tendency of the human heart in Adam. We take good things, even the best things, things like a successful career or romantic love or material possessions, even even family, and we turn them into ultimate things. We take good things and we make them into God things in our lives, and then they become bad things. And we begin to make these good things the center of our identity. What is it for you? What is the, the temptation for a Christian? What we, we call these things that, that rise up in the place of our worship and adoration in the place of God, we call these things idols. And certainly in Ephesus, they were dealing with literal idols made of gold and silver, idols of, of money, sex, and power. But we deal with these things as well. My identity is my work. My identity is my kids. My identity is what other people think of me or say about me. And our hearts deify these things as the center of our lives because we think that these are what gives us significance and security and safety and fulfillment. And sometimes we don't even have those things, but we think that if we did and when we do, then I will know who I am and be who I am. Now, is it wrong to want romantic love? Is it? (laughs) We're answering carefully. My, My wife would definitely say, no. (laughs) and uh, would want a little bit more romance from me. Is it wrong to want financial security? I could say the same thing I just said a minute ago. Uh, Is it wrong to want athletic prowess, even if it's in something as silly as pickleball? No, not at all. Here's the thing. Just any of these things, these good things, they don't make a, a good identity, do they? Because none of these things really will last. Yet we're people made to worship. When Genesis talks about us being made in the image of God to reflect him, we are profoundly made to worship. And yet rather than worshiping the creator, 
we worship the created thing and we, we begin to root our identity and who we are in what we desire. And yet what we see in Ephesians 1, what I just read to you, is that if we are believers in Christ, our identity is something altogether different than what we do or how we feel. You have been called into something, something altogether new. Our identity is no longer in Adam or a created thing. Rather, our identity, Christian, yours. Let me tell you what it is. Your identity is securely in Christ. In Christ. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22 clarifies this. It says, for as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This little phrase, in Christ, is so important. Variations of this are are, are used 216 times in Paul's writings. This is a a phrase that is rarely found prior to Paul, but in Christ far better describes Christianity than, than the word Christian does. You know, the word Christian actually only appears in scripture three times, three different places, Acts 11, Acts 26 and 1 Peter 4. And and the reason I say that in Christ is a far better description of what you are as a believer is is that this word Christian, we know it gets abused constantly. There's so many people around us, maybe some of you here this morning, who, who would say, I'm a Christian. And it simply means to you, I was born in America. I'm part of Western society. My parents took me to church when I was young. I had a grandmother that prayed for me. And this word Christian, even when it's attached to things like Christian movies and music, we know it's so easy to abuse this term and for it to to be completely meaningless. But in Christ invites no such abuse. Instead, it invites self-reflection. Not, am I performing well? Am I an American? Do I look good to other people? But rather, am I his? Are you in Christ? Have you gone from believing just that Christ has existed, that he lived, to actually believing in him, to throwing the weight of your belief on him? It it is a far different thing. Let Let me give you an example of this. I believe that there is a football team that trains in Ashburn, right? Do I believe in them? No, not at all, not at all. There's a change when we, when we ask that question, am I his? Have I believed in him? My in Christ, being in Christ is the one thing that changes everything. And I want us to see now, beginning this week and then going next week, to see what happens when we are in Christ. In Christ, first of all, I am, this is who you are, I am a saint. In Christ, I am a saint. Verse one says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think of when you think of a saint? Maybe some of you are from a Catholic or Orthodox tradition. Maybe when you think of saint, you picture icons or images. And this word saint makes us think of like the great heroes of the Christian faith, right? the the superheroes of of scripture and those that came in the early church, those exceptional people who are almost like the superheroes of the faith. 
And, and so, so actually in, in the early church, well, we'll say, see here that Paul addresses all believers as saints, but some centuries later, they began to regard only martyrs as saints. And then after that, it, it kind of got out of hand and, and it was back to everyone who did something special was called a saint. And then the Catholic church, at least in the 17th century, started putting in place strict criteria where only the Pope could ultimately determine who was canonized as a saint. And you had to pass through certain criteria like you have to die. You have to have a following. You have to have not just one, but multiple miracles during your life, at least two. And eventually, with a, a good following, a good campaign, and, and uh, the approval of the Pope, you can be added to the list of saints, and then you can be some, become someone who was just relaxing in heaven, enjoying the presence of God, but who is now tasked with hearing the prayers of Christians and responding to them and passing them along, right? So, so this is kind of the, the system that we see. But for Paul, and this is profound, all believers— Flaws and all are saints. All believers are consecrated, holy people. Saints are simply the, the faithful members of God's people. Do you know that you're a saint? We are saints in Christ, greeting for everyone in the church, everyone. Not just you, but those people around you, those people that have professed faith in Jesus, and yet, yet you look down on them potentially for the way that they have lived. Saints. Paul's writing this to people who have all kinds of issues, people who have, as we saw last week, have yet to burn their magic books, have yet to cast down the idols that they keep in their homes. He is writing this to the saints, even the drunks, the perverts, the failures, the floozies of Ephesus. He is saying to you who are now in Christ, saints, only criteria, be in him. Are you in Christ? If so, you, brother, sister, you are a saint. You are no longer a sinner. That's not your identity. That is not who you are. You are a saint. Do you hear me? You are a saint of God. Not because you are self-righteous, not because of your self-sacrifice, not because you have a, a following or have lived through a few miracles. No, you are a saint because Jesus has taken your sin, all of it, all of your sin upon himself on the cross. And in this great exchange, he doesn't just take your sin and, and, and say, you're clean now, go and live, try not to get dirty. No, what Jesus does for us is he takes our sin and he gives us something in return. He says, give me your sin. He takes it upon himself on the cross and what he gives us in return is his righteousness. This is what theologians call double imputation. That's imputation with an I, not with an A. This is what... The, not only does Christ take our sin, but in him we receive his righteousness and are counted as sons and daughters of God. And what this means for us is that you who are a saint in Christ, as you embrace this, this should cause you to just, just relax a little bit. Relax a little bit in your salvation. You know, it's, I, I don't like to be told to relax very often by people, especially in conflict. <laughs> but this is a wonderful invitation right here to just relax in what he's done, what he's accomplished. See, the Bible almost never describes Christians as sinners. Overwhelmingly, it describes us as righteous, holy, beloved. But you say, Mark, I don't feel like a saint. I don't feel like a saint. And I know a lot of Christians who don't look like saints. How do we reconcile that? Friends, can I ask you something? Let's be honest with each other for just a moment. Do we still sin? Yes. Yes, while in this flesh, even saints 
still sin. And yet that doesn't change the reality of this new identity that Christ has bought us through the cross. See, justification to the Christian is not something in the future to attain through our righteous actions. We're not striving to be uh, approved, declared righteous by God. It is the first word of Christianity. When you profess faith in him, when you look to his finished work on the cross, you in that moment receive justification, declared righteous by God. I want to show you what happens when you become a Christian. And yes, I'm going to get the whiteboard out. And hopefully you can see this and, and see the, the wonderful, beautiful handwriting. Can, I, can everyone see this okay right now? Okay, all right. We're gonna also maybe put these up on the screen so you can see this. But the first thing I want you to see is, is that there's really three things that happen when we put our faith in Jesus. Over here, you probably have a hard time seeing that, okay. The first thing that happens is we are saved from the penalty of sin. When you are in Christ and have looked to the cross and the resurrection for your salvation, and new life, you are saved from the penalty of sin. You, right now, you are saved from the penalty of sin. You no longer have to face that. Christ has faced it for you. He has taken it on himself. What we call this in theological terms, if you want to use church words, is justification. You are justified in Christ. You are, from his perspective, just as if I'd never sinned. Justified means to be declared righteous to be declared righteous by God. So why do we keep on sinning? Well, well, here's what happens also when we come into saving faith in Jesus. Not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, present tense, we are saved, justified. We are also being saved from the power of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. What, what the theologians call this would be sanctification. We are being sanctified. Sanctified. We are declared righteous, but we are also being made righteous by God. We are in this, this progress of becoming more like Christ, growing in Christ's likeness with stops and starts, failures and falls along the way. But how many of you have lived this out? We know that we are in a process right now of being saved from the power of sin in our life. It doesn't always happen all at once that we turn our lives to Jesus and these, these habits and these things that we built our life upon and temptations cease. No. No, God is continuing to form us, even through our trials, even through our sufferings, even through the sin that he, by the power of the Spirit, is overcoming in us. He is making us more like him. So in this life, in this earth, we are being saved from the power of sin over us in Christ. But we look forward to something so glorious. We look forward to this. We will be saved from the presence of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin. We will be glorified in heaven. We look forward to a day when this work is done. When this sanctifying work is done, where we get to be in the near presence of God for eternity. So in Christ, we are saved from the penalty of our sin, justified, declared righteous by God, pardoned, washed, declared new. We receive his righteousness. We are being saved from the power of sin. We're in a process of daily being sanctified, growing in Christ's likeness, and we will be saved from the presence of sin, glorified. What that means to be glorified is we will be perfected in his righteousness eternally. And, and yet the problem is, and I know this problem, and we, we live in this, we're not here yet. We're not here yet. We're living here 
in this process of, of being saved. So, so what that means is you are a saint. God has declared you a saint. And yet we continue to wrestle with our sin and we continue to live in this life of trying to live into this new identity that we have in Christ. But we need to constantly go back to this reality that we have been justified, declared righteous by God. And so we don't beat ourselves up. We don't wallow and say, I am a dirty, rotten scoundrel. I am constantly failing. No, in Christ, you have a new identity, which is a saint being daily formed in Christ-likeness toward a day in which you will be glorified, a clear and perfect reflection of your father. Sadly, I think a lot of times in our theology, uh, and, and especially with some of my dearly beloved Reformed brothers and sisters, we learn the doctrines of grace, and we never move beyond our depravity. And so even in light of the magnificent saving work of Jesus, I hear believers say these kinds of things, continue to say things like, I'm worthless. I'm nothing. I'm dead. I'm lost. I'm broken. I'm like a spider over the flame before sovereign God. And we forget that when Christ took the full wrath of God upon himself, as he bore the weight of our sin upon that cross, he cried out from the cross, it is finished. It is finished. It is finished. You are genuinely new in Christ. You are genuinely washed white as snow. Saint is now our identity, while sin is our occasional activity. As the Spirit of God overcomes that day by day in our life. You aren't what's been done to you, but what Jesus has done for you. You aren't your occupation, your orientation, the opinion of others. You aren't what you do, but what Jesus has done. What you do doesn't determine who you are, but who you are in Christ will determine what you do. I love uh, addiction recovery ministries that help people get out of the, the chains of their addictions. But one thing that I see sometimes that I think is a, is a flaw in some of these addiction recovery ministries is, is that the meetings begin this way. They begin with someone standing up and saying, or, or seated saying, hello, my name is blank and I'm a alcoholic or whatever it is. My name is blank and I am an alcoholic. And while this admission that's brave and it can lead to a, a rigorously honest self-assessment, I'm convinced from the scriptures that we cannot embrace our fallenness as our identity. Don't you dare take on as your identity an identity that Satan would give you. That's why I, I love that in ministries like Celebrate Recovery, they, they keep the, our new identity first. Hello, my name is Mark. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And I've struggled with an addiction to fill in the blank. You see the difference? You see how this begins as a Christian with our new identity, not in our sin, not I am this, not I'm beyond recovery, beyond hope, but in Christ. And that changes everything. What Christianity teaches us, what, what this wonderful Bible teaches us is that in our broken relationship to God, the first thing that he does is he justifies us. He pardons us and he declares us righteous in his sight. So that means that you are no longer striving to be justified before God. When he declares you a saint, when the apostle Paul writes to you as a saint, he means it. He doesn't mean future saint, one who aspires to be a saint, one who can't figure out how to be a saint. No, he writes to you, a saint. Justification then is not the goal we're striving for. It's the gift we've been given. For there is no distinction, Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in 
Christ Jesus. What does this look like practically in my life? I don't know about you, but, but sometimes even as a saint, even knowing this, I have a tendency to, to hear the lies of the enemy, the accusations of the adversary, saying that, no, you're not justified. No, you're not counted righteous. No, those things that you think that you've confessed and have been forgiven, those are still out there. Those are still causing you to be guilty. Anyone ever have those kinds of thoughts come into your mind? I do. And what I've learned to do, and what we'll learn to do as we get into Ephesians 6 and talk about this helmet of salvation, is I've learned to respond to those accusations with the truth of the gospel, knowing what Jesus has done for me. A couple years ago, a friend of mine and I wrote a song together. And this has always stuck with me, this little verse that we wrote together. It was this, when the enemy taunts me with shame and regret and tells me that I should be damned, I will point to my robes, they are washed white as snow, and I'll tell him whose child I am. This is what we have in Christ, a brand new identity. In Christ, Ephesians, this greeting goes on to say, we have grace and peace, not just with God, but grace and peace from God. That's why Paul can say in his greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus has done is he's given us grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And what that grace results in is peace with God, but not just peace with him, but peace from God, a settled, calm confidence in who we are because of what he's done. I think sometimes when we're in Christ, we have this tendency to then begin to look at our righteousness and think, I've got it together now. I'm doing so well. And we forget that we needed the cross or we wallow in our sin and our shame and our brokenness. We don't live as saints. And we forget what the cross has accomplished. To be a Christian means to grow daily in knowing the love of God toward us. And in so doing, we also see the depth of what he saved us from. But the cross is enough for both. Ultimately, living a life that has its identity centered in Christ is simple. We come to grips with the fact that we are desperately poor, broken, and lost apart from him, but that he has loved us immensely and given us a new life in him. Dear saint, remember who you are. Who is your identity in? In Christ. Some of you barely said it, as if you barely believe it. Who is your identity in? What does that mean that you are? You are a saint. You are a saint of the living God. Dear saint, remember who you are. Remember who your identity is in. It is in Christ. And what that means is that our identity is, been, is to be rooted in what the cross says we are. Someone who is in desperate need in our own brokenness and sin, who Christ saw fit to rescue and to save and to give his righteousness to, so that we no longer go back to that brokenness, but we live now in his resurrection glory, looking forward to the day where ultimately we will be not just justified, but fully sanctified and glorified in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning we would root our identity not in what we've done, not even in who we want to be, but in who you say that we are. And as I pray that as we go into Ephesians and study it more and more, I pray we would grow in this new identity, that what we do and how we live would flow out of what you've accomplished for us, what you've demonstrated toward us and your tremendous love and grace. 
God, help us to know who we are in Christ and to be who we are in Christ. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.